Listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Welcome to the Believe and Follow podcast. I'm your host, James Rutazzi. You might get a little feeling of deja vu because I opened up last week's podcast with a very similar verse from Deuteronomy. This is part two of last week's discussion that was titled, Do Not Add or Take Away. As last week's discussion was coming to a close, I wanted to make sure I underscored an important point concerning unity that is strongly connected with this command from God, do not add or take away. Let's first listen to a conversation recorded just before last week's podcast was published that begins discussing a concept Jesus stated on a number of occasions. He that is not for us is against us, and similar statements. So what do you guys got? Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, about whoever is not for us is against us. Whoever is not against us is for us. For us. Because it went both ways, and the, depending on which passage you're looking at. Right. And he who does not gather scatters. He who does not gather, scatters. 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 Which which is, can I paraphrase that? Sure. We interpret that to mean that we're not actively doing what we're supposed to be actively doing. We're doing the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, exactly, because we are supposed to be actively seeking the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew 12, 30... That's Jesus talking. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever who does not gather with me scatters. That's Matthew twelve thirty. Was going the other way. Yeah, I'm because sure that was because you were quoting those going that way, but I found that those going the other way. So one of two going the other way. He was not against us before. So that is whoever is not with me is against me, and then in Luke it says. Whoever is not against you is for you. Yeah, that was, yeah. So that's That's Luke 9.50. And it's a different context, too. Right. What does that mean? 
You're just, you have to look back. Obviously, not mean the same thing. Perhaps. Do the first one then. Whoever is not against against us is for us. No, whoever is not for us is against us. Do that one first. So the Matthew one? That's the Matthew one, yeah. It's not with me, it's against me. What was the title of that one? Well, that would only be true in a case in which um, you were talking about something where it was impossible to be neutral. I think that's the upshot of both of those passages. A more modern example is slavery. Is slavery. When the crisis came, it was impossible to be neutral. Some people can be apolitical. Some people can, in any kind of political conflict, not take a side or not want to take a side. And you can sort of sit by the sidelines. But spiritually, in this business about the kingdom of heaven, can you be neutral? I mean, you can't be both in and out. Well, certainly, you can't be both in and out, and you can't be like, well, you know, this conflict between good and evil, I don't know about it. I'd, I'd rather just sit on the sidelines and not deal with it. So whoever is not for us is against us. So my, my um, version gives a reference in that verse to Mark 9.40. Okay. And also Luke 11.23. So let's check out the chain references. Mark 9.40. For the one who is not against us is for us. There's, there's no context in that verse to... Well, this is like the one in Luke. So John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So someone who was not one of the regular group of disciples, you know, one of the apostles, was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. When they said he was casting out demons in your name, what does that mean when they say in your name? By his authority. By his authority, yes. Which is, which is, an, which is, which allows one to at least clearly infer that they were for him. Exactly, and that was the inference that Jesus made. Jesus was totally aware of what was going on. And, and it would appear that they were indeed doing it in his name, even though they were not necessarily one of the group that was hanging out with Jesus. What would qualify someone to say we're they're doing it in Jesus' name? Whatever they're doing. Like when we pray, we often end our prayers in what? In with what phrase? Before we say amen. Right, right, exactly. We usually say, in Jesus' name we pray. There has to be an explicit acknowledgement of God's authority. Go ahead. An interesting um, counterexample is Acts 19. Was that where, the seven sons of yeah. Sceva? Yeah, I was where thinking somebody, about that. Somebody one, seems yeah. to do the same thing. And the Spirit replies to him saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
Yeah, give me the verse where that starts. 13. 13. Because look at the way they say it. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had eaten Acts 19, 13. Yeah, Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, it gives you some indication of what was wrong with what these guys did. When it says, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They were saying, okay, they didn't necessarily know Jesus, meaning they didn't know his teachings. So they couldn't do it. Okay, we heard of this guy, Jesus, and we hear he he casts out demons. We hear Paul casts out demons. So I'm going to give this a shot. And then, of course, what happens is, but the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And in the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and there were seven sons of Siva, right? And overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I'll get you guys' thoughts about it, but I have a thought about this. Go ahead. I mean, I was just, you know, it sounds like a similar idea, and but in, in Jesus' case, you know, he seemed to know or think that the person doing it, you know, knew what they were doing, knew Jesus himself, Right, knew the power there, and whereas this one, obviously, <laughs> something went terribly wrong. So it's just an interesting, yeah. even though they're both, I guess, in, in Jesus' name. Well, but not in Jesus' name. That's the point that Luke is making. And the, their, their faith apparently was in Paul. The narrative here is very economical. They saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. In other words, by not the Jesus that I know, not by my Jesus, but by Paul's Jesus. So they were not dedicated disciples of Jesus Christ. They didn't know Jesus, meaning they didn't know his teaching. But they didn't know Jesus, so they were not doing it in his name. Because they said, this Jesus, whom Paul talks about, they didn't have any direct knowledge. Because if you did know, then you'd say, this Jesus who I serve, like the apostles do. You know, my Jesus, the Jesus who I serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say such and such. They were not able to cast out the demons. They didn't have any power over the demons. What happens? The demons turn and beat them up. Is there any modern-day application of this? Since you asked the question, I'm sure there is, but I can't think of it. You're certain I have an answer in mind. But work your brains a little bit and just see if you can think of a modern-day application of this. To me, it's like the people who use, you know, the name of Christianity and the name of Jesus in the way that they want to without actually knowing who he is. Yeah. You know, that, oh, you can do, you know, for instance, you can do whatever you want. It's okay. Jesus is going to forgive you. It's all that kind of... Any specific examples? Not off the top of my head, but that I know of personally. Not specific examples, but uh, I mean, I think in terms of people who don't really get into the word and they don't really... um, but just 
you know, they, they might go to church, they hear something in the sermon, whatever, and then they're going by that rather than actually themselves getting into the word. Right. Many, many people, even people who are not active or, you know, actually even go to church, still consider themselves Christians. Yeah. I know lots of people that are like that. The specific example that I was thinking of was, and this always gets me, politicians will invoke the name of Jesus in a speech or something, not because of their belief in Jesus, but they're pandering to the religious right. That type of invocation by a person in authority and power I have a funny feeling that in the judgment, the people that do that, this will not go well for them. I especially you think, think? I, you think, I especially think of like Donald Trump. Who could be, who could be a more unchristian type person, but still invokes the name of Jesus? When he made his trip to Europe, he said in a speech, some of these European countries are going right to hell. And he's spoken like a true non-believer. He often invokes. Leaders often invoke the name of Jesus or make supplication to God in complete and total ignorance. If we were in the age when demons would rise up and beat up people, I think... And they're doing it for purely political means, too. They're doing it to curry favor amongst a bunch of people who it's questionable how how well they understand Jesus either. The hypocrisy but, of the Pharisees did not go over too well with Jesus, with Jesus. I don't think it should go over too well these days. Exactly. Who did Jesus have his most stinging criticism for? It was the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. He would hang with people who were drunkards and sinners. He would talk with people who were sexually immoral and try to preach the gospel to them. But to the Pharisees, he was very critical. Yeah, exactly. And I think so. These people who, um, who politically just use it as another, you know, check off another box of something I have to mention in my speech so that I'm appealing to that demographic. There's going to be serious consequences for that. Sometimes you think that people like uh, receiving an award of some kind, yeah, receiving an award, and then they and they use the name of Jesus there, and, and you wonder, you know, does that person really know Jesus? That's another one. And people often use it like an expression when something good happens. They'll say, "Well, thank God." It's more like an expression. So many people just go, "Oh my God," when things happen, and they're not really thinking about God or not really invoking Many of the people who do that would wind up in the category of these uh, seven exorcists here in Acts 19. I was thinking about that one. Any other thoughts? I don't know if it relates directly, but there is another aspect at the same point. Go ahead. As usual, I can't remember the citation, but where, where Jesus says... Um, because uh, against the Pharisees, their their problem was not simply that they did not practice what they preached, but they that they did the opposite. You were adding to the people's burdens with all these laws and rules, and by so doing, you're making it even harder for them to enter right. the kingdom and to enter the kingdom of heaven. Anything that you add. I'm actually going to quote this verse in the podcast. 
connecting it with the discussion that Jeremy and I were having last Sunday. But in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the very last verse, verse 32, says, who wants to read it? See that you do all I command. Do not add to it or take away from it. Anything you add to God's instruction is going to be an additional burden. So we have the things that God requires us to do. Now, God requires us to do much less than he required the nation of Israel to do as far as number of commands. But perhaps the fewer commands are perhaps even more difficult to carry out. But we have less of a, less rules that we have to follow. And we have a very simple instruction set. And people are always wanting to add to it. So that's an Old Testament quotation where it says, don't add to or take away from my instruction. Can anybody think of a New Testament verse that's along the same theme, but not the one in Revelation? (laughs) That's too easy. Anybody got a thought? There are a few. Actually, there are a bunch. I'll tell you the one I used. 2 John 9. And I read 2 John 9 all the way to 11. Anybody care to read it? Yeah, 2 John 9. Transgressors and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not his doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that bid him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. So the person who is giving support to the person who is not in the teaching, is like one of the people that's against him, and now you're against him, against Jesus, and so you're against him also for supporting this person who's not in the teaching. In the ESV, it says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And remember, a while back, we did the whole walking by faith thing, the idea of you're walking with God, by following along with it. Can two walk together? Is that Amos 3.3? Unless they're in agreement. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to be following his leading, following his instructions. If we add anything to it, even if it's innocent, it's going to, as time goes on, be regarded in the same class as God's Word. Well, at our church, we all wear jackets and ties. And then somebody else comes and wants to be leading, and I've actually had people say this to me. They say, well, where's your jacket and tie? you got to wear a jacket and tie, because that's what we do. This is now becoming an instruction. Well, where in God's Word does it say you have to wear a jacket and tie? Well, it doesn't. Like one easy one. I don't think there were jackets and ties. Well, yeah, exactly. They didn't have jackets and ties. Well, exactly. So they, they would have said, what does that mean? Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, one easy one I think that a lot of groups fall into is uh, no alcohol. The no alcohol yeah. one. Yeah. There's that's a difference a, between being wary of it and not having it at all. And there are so many people in so many churches that believe 
the Bible is telling us that alcohol is a forbidden substance, and that's the way they teach it, because that's and the way... And rocker and strong drink is, great, is raging. There's all sorts of... There's all sorts of great passages in Proverbs chapter 23, I think it is, towards the end of the chapter, is a really cool bit about being drunk. And there's lots about the evils of drinking. But God knew exactly what he wanted to have included in his word, and in Ephesians 5.19 he says, do not get drunk with wine. Yeah. We're in his effects. But be filled with the Spirit, which gives you the reason why. In other words, don't turn to alcohol for comfort, turn to the Spirit. So don't, don't drink spirits. Don't drink spirits. Drink the Spirit. It's a good play on words. Good tagline. But in so many churches, they teach complete abstinence, and that's an additional burden. Yeah, and not even as an option. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying to somebody, well, you really shouldn't drink. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, what I think is you should stay away from alcohol. That's fine. But what's wrong with is is saying that that's God's teaching. Now you're adding an extra burden. So it's something that's perfectly reasonable and perhaps even beneficial. And the people who started saying that may have said it the correct way. But But as time goes on, whatever it is you do as a church, whatever you do becomes more codified. Any organization is like that. As time goes on, if your organization keeps meeting, your practices become more codified. And unless someone sits down, which everyone should anyway, every believer should be familiar with what the Bible says, unless and until you familiarize yourself with the Bible, you're going to think that all the things that they do, they do because the Bible says that's what you have to do. So even if it's innocent and even if it's good, and even if it's something that you think might be beneficial to this particular group, it may be a good idea. In fact, I think it is. I think it's a best practice to keep what you do as a church limited as much as possible. Your practice is limited. And make sure you teach it. Make sure you make it clear to everybody. This is what we do and this is why we do it. This is our authority. Right, exactly. Taking the authority from the scriptures. And you can even say, hey, if we get together at a certain time of day to have our worship service, it's not because the scripture says that's the time of day. But you know what the scripture says? We should all agree. Let's say we have a church that gets together at 10 a.m. on the first day of the week to worship. And let's say someone becomes a member who has a job that they just get off at 10 o'clock and they can't possibly get to worship on time. And they say, can we just move this a little bit later? And we say, nope, 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 it's got to be 10 o'clock. We've always done it that way. It's the way my father did it and his father before him and his father before him. It's 10 o'clock. The person who's not permitting the change is the one that's actually sinning. Because we should agree. We should all agree. We should wait for one another. We should be equally considerate to everyone. So if somebody says, uh, I can't make it at that time, then we got to see what we can do to accommodate everybody. And if it just means making the, the worship service start a little bit later, well, that's nothing. Because there's nothing in Scripture that says you have to start a certain time. So sometimes we might see traditions in other churches and traditions that, that maybe we even grew up with. Once we examine the scripture and see that it wasn't part of their worship, then 
as we're trying to figure out what we're going to do for our worship, maybe we should abandon that particular thing so we're not leading others astray. It's a really hard thing to do. That connects with the whoever is not for us is against us. Why did Jesus say that? What was the purpose of statements like that? Well, in the first one that we looked at, the one from Matthew, yeah, not the, not, not the one in Luke. Matthew 12, Matthew 12 30. 30, right? So this one, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The second part, I kind of picture, like, have you seen the scene, Gladiator, where he's walking through his field, just kind of, like, touching... Uh, sheaves of grain and stuff like that. Right. Like, like I imagine, you know, if you're walking through, if you're not picking some up, you know, you're just naturally going to be, you know, not even meaning to, but it's just going to be throwing them on the ground too as you go through. So, he who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah. The context of this one. Now, this is another one about casting out demons, but this is one where the Pharisees are saying to him. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And of course, Jesus says, well, that doesn't make any sense. If Satan's work is to inflict these people, if I'm driving them out, I'm working against them. So if he's doing it, if I'm doing that by, uh, by Satan, then he's divided against himself. The, the power of the spirit, stand. I think in, in, uh, in uh, the terms of logical analysis, would say the power of the spirit is unitary. It can it can only do one thing, and where that thing is, that particular act is is seen. Particular action is seen. That can only be the spirit producing. I'm putting it very generally. And Jesus put it much simple. You know? If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So that's the context of this one. But he says, then, whoever is, is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then he says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What, what I understand in applying this, this the examples that, we, that we've read, what I'm hearing is that it's, it's not, it's a terrible sin to ascribe to the Holy Spirit anything that is in fact evil. And it's also a sin to fail to ascribe to the Holy Spirit anything which is, which is good. What was going on here is Jesus was doing good by the Holy Spirit, and they were calling it evil. And they were calling it evil, why? Because of the power behind it, who they thought? Well, they didn't agree with what what they were teaching. Right. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. That's why they were saying, he's not doing this by God, he's doing it by Beelzebub. And... What are the two things that God requires from us? One is that we believe and follow. And believe and follow what? What he says. What he says. His instructions. And that also connects with this adding to thing. 
and taking away from thing, right? Obviously, we can't take away from, we can't neglect to do and communicate to others what God has taught us. That's the taking away from part. We can't add to it either. And so we have to be very, very careful that what we do is not going to, in the end result, be adding to what God has instructed. What form does that often take in modern ministry? It, it tends to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it tends to be used by either the, the minister or by the organization to give credit to the minister well, yeah. and to the organization. Yeah. It almost follows the, the, the practical history of that is that it almost follows inevitably that if you don't give God proper credit, you're going to be giving it to yourself. Everything that Jesus did, he always gave glory to God. He always gave God the credit. This is not, I'm not doing anything on my own. I'm just doing exactly what God told me. But you see, here's the other thing. We have to be able to say that also. We have to be able to say, this is not our thinking why we do the things we do. We're just doing what God told us. We're doing no less and no more. Because that's what Jesus said when Jesus came. He said, I'm only going to do and teach what the Father has one, told me. Which is one of my, one of my favorite verses, is one of everybody's favorite verses, is what, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important instruction? Do to others what you would have them do to you. If you follow that, you won't go wrong. And loving God. Unless you hate yourself. And love. And love he God says, all, you. all the law and the commandments rest on this. Love God with all your heart and soul. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way Jesus put it. Yeah. That's an important thing. Because if you love God, then what? You're going to keep his commandments. You're going to be careful to keep his commandments. And it does border upon hypocrisy. It starts to border upon, then it comes just full-blown hypocrisy. If you take it on yourself to add anything to it, like the Pharisees did, well, if 600 rules are holy, then 6,000 rules is going to be 10, ten times, times as holy. <laughs> That's not true. You know? how it's got Sabbath elevators. <laughs> and a lot of other things. There must be a, a verse in which Jesus, and I remember this, that there was, yeah. In one of the gospels, it wasn't Paul who said that adding gave specific examples where this kind of legalism was destructive. It's particularly oppressive to the poor. I'm trying to remember exactly where that was. It was in one of his debates with the Pharisees. I like to think about it like, you know, one of the figures that I use is like a dartboard, and God's in the center, and you got to hit the bullseye. If you throw your dart and you're to the left of the bullseye, and you keep correcting by going a little bit further to the right, further to the right, and then finally you hit the bullseye, any further adjustment to the right is not going to help you. Right? It's going to take you away from the bullseye again. And so the point is, it's God's instruction, because God's instruction, Jesus says, protect them with your word, your word is truth, that's... John 17, 22. And what does he say about the truth? You'll know the truth, and the truth will 
set you free. free. So God's word is what will set you free. Man's word, man's instruction is what will burden you. So we have to make sure that if we're going to band together as a church, that the instruction we deliver is God's instruction. So first we have to know what God's instruction is, and then we have to be careful, like it said in Deuteronomy 12, be careful to do it and not add anything else, not lean on our own understanding. But there are all kinds of things like that in worship, right? In the Catholic Church, when I came from, they had a lot of things that became so firmly entrenched and codified just because they were doing them for more than a thousand years. The priests had to wear certain color vestments for certain times of the year, and they had to, and it was like, you know, here's your Easter outfit, here's your Lent outfit, here's your whatever outfit. And they made a big deal about the liturgical calendar and the things that had to be done, and none of that was in the Bible. Hey, it's nice, maybe, if you're going to wear outfits and you're going to dress yourself in a certain way for there to be some variety, that's fine. Don't make that a part of the teaching. Don't make that an integral part of the worship. And be careful to tell people that what's binding is God's word. And everything else is not. So best practices for us to have as little of the not stuff as part of our worship. And so we can say, what do you got? What do you got there? Jeremy's got what he's looking for. Uh, Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is an interesting... Starts at the beginning of it. So so it sounds like to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. This is where Jesus is pronouncing... He starts off the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which are blessings. In this passage here, more towards the end of his ministry, he's pronouncing woes on people describes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers anyway he continues to go on with that in trouble in troubles of the catholic uh, churches do not call anyone on earth father well yeah we have one father and he is in heaven You can't interpret that too many ways. What does the honest person do who reads the Bible? That's how Martin Luther got on his bent. Martin Luther was this monk that was not particularly successful, not particularly happy. And the priest who was in charge of him said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to make you a Bible instructor. So read your Bible and teach it to people. When he read it, he said, well, this is interesting. There's all sorts of stuff we do that's not in here, that's not even in agreement with what's in here. It certainly made him successful, but not successful in the Catholic Church. Didn't, didn't help him. He, he, applied, he applied um, Matthew 23, 13 directly to the uh, 
to the bishops and, uh, and cardinals of the church. This is a very serious, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Yes. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's an interesting thing to remember. He's talking to the people that the general populace in Jerusalem saw as the highest religious people. That's a very serious thing. So forgetting about what horrible people the Pharisees were, how do we keep from Jesus pronouncing these woes upon us? Make sure to stick to the Bible. Yeah, and keep it simple. Let's not add to, let's not go beyond. Do not go beyond what was written like the Apostle Paul told the people in Corinth. He told the people in Corinth who were merely, I use I merely air quotes, they were dividing into sects and they were honoring one over another, right, right, etc., etc. And the Apostle Paul said, you're going beyond what's written. There's nothing, there's no instruction for you to, to divide this way. And the other thing about that is this brings in also the unity issue. This idea about keeping the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, being united in the same mind and judgment. If the church over here is only doing what the Bible says, and the church over here is only doing what the Bible says, they're going to be doing the same thing. If this church here adds some additional practice, now they're divided. There's division now against between them and this other church who's doing just what the Bible says. Well, these are the guys that have that extra practice. These are the guys that dress in the outfits and put the big hats on. And these are the guys that don't. Automatic division. And people will look at that and say, how come that church wears the funny outfits and the big hats? How come that church, how come that church has musical instruments in their worship and that one doesn't? Find out what the Bible teaches about what you're supposed to do and then just do that. The really amazing thing is that, as far as I can tell, even people who are not Christians who don't have the discernment of the Holy Spirit and see that that kind of thing simply does not work. And that's why most people get the wrong impression about what God requires from them when they see all the various and sundry, all this division, then they get the wrong idea. And it's so hard to teach unity to people because everybody grows up with division as as what they're being told to do. Or they see, these religious leaders must think the division is okay, because they're not doing anything to simplify their worship or come together. They're accepting it. They're glorying in their division. But Jesus said that he only didn't said what the Father told him to. He had unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit the same way, and then the apostles were to follow suit. And then we're supposed to do likewise. And if we do likewise, then there won't be any division. Now, we find ourselves, though, in this world where, how are you going to do that? <laughs> you know, when, when you were taught that in order to be legitimate, you have to be right. Somebody else is going to be wrong. 
And Jesus was all about that too, though. And God is all about that. That's the reason why God separated the nation. And one of the reasons why God separated the nation of Israel from amongst all the other nations. Not because they were any better people, but just so that you understand the principle that God chooses. God's going to say, yeah, we're going to take the ones who are right and reject the ones who are wrong. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And then Genesis 4 kicks off with God choosing. Now God has to choose. Who's following my instruction and who's not? Now that we have human beings not following my instruction, which Adam and Eve introduced to the human race, Thank you very much. then God has to make a determination. God has to make a determination who's right and who's wrong. He chooses uh, right from the And it goes right through the Bible. Noah and his ark, how many people were saved? This idea of God choosing goes right through the Bible. So when he decided to destroy the world with a flood, how many people were saved? Eight in all. Well, who knows how many people there were at the time? Etc., etc., etc. That's the big theme of the Bible. And it, one of my recent readings along that line in uh, the, you know, the act that I'm using was a book of Judges. Judges, yeah. <laughs> 40 years of, of peace followed by, you know, Eight years slaughter of, of uh, half the, uh, the population. Right, and the book of Judges was always the people going astray. And not once, like six or seven Oh yeah, it was a cycle. They would go astray, God would send some group to afflict them, like the Philistines or whatever, and then they would cry out to God, and God would appoint a judge to rescue them. He would rescue them, and they would toe the line for a little while, and then they would go astray again, and it says a number of times that Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in their own mind. The message from God is never, you guys are intelligent people, so do what you think is best. That's never the message from God. Although people generally think of that, look, I'll do what I think is best. I'm not an evil person. I'm not trying to oppress anyone or put anything over on anyone. So God's going to accept me if I do what's right in my own judgment. But so many people say that. Yes, and uh, it's not a laissez-faire moral universe. No, not at all. And how are you going to know what God's instruction is? How are you going to know what's right if someone doesn't tell you? Romans 10, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if they don't get preached at? And how are they going to preach if they're not sent? You don't go. That's the pattern that God uses. It's interesting how it all goes together. We began talking about he who doesn't gather with us scatters, and that connects with the other thoughts that we've been Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. God is one. What does this mean for us? 
Jesus personified this concept and showed us how we can be one with God also. He said his teaching is not his own, but his who sent him. In other words, God's teaching. That's John chapter 7 verse 16. Jesus also said he only did what pleased the Father. John 8:29. The apostles copied the example of Jesus, and we are to do likewise. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. If we desire to be like Jesus, if we desire to be one with God, then we will be careful to follow God's instruction and not add to it or take away from it. In order to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and be united in the same mind and judgment, we need to carefully follow God's instruction and not add to it or take away from it. You see how these concepts are all connected? We cannot follow one and not the other. We cannot deviate from the divine pattern laid out in Scripture. This includes seemingly trivial elements of what we do when we gather together as the Lord's Church. If Scripture makes it clear, for example, that Jesus and his apostles used grape juice and unleavened bread for the Lord's Supper, we then should be careful to follow that example. Even though we understand that those elements in and of themselves do not possess any special properties. The power lies in doing only what has been commanded, no more and no less. In so doing, we are then one with everyone else who is also carefully following what has been commanded. Not to mention one with the apostles, one with Jesus, and one with God. I hope this concept has been made clearer with this week's podcast. A special thanks to Dwight, Claude, and Jeremy for their contribution to this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or even if you have any helpful suggestions, please feel free to email me at james at believeandfollow.org. That's all for now. Goodbye and God bless. The love of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be. Fine gold.